0: All right, let me read the scripture for us. It comes from Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, starting from verse 32 to uh, verse 42. If you don't have a Bible, you can always grab one back there. Mark chapter 14, verse 32 to 42. Here's God's word. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. All right, let me pray for us. Father, we we ask that you would come by your Spirit today. That as we open up your Scriptures, as we try to sit under your scriptures as your people, I pray that you would speak loud and clear. We confess that the greatest need right now in this hour is for you to speak, for us to be shaped by your voice, by your truth, by your words. I pray that we see by what what we see in Jesus' example today, that we would be transformed, that we would be renewed, that we would be encouraged. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the most excited I've ever been besides um, getting married, besides the birth of my lovely four children whom I dearly love with all of my heart, right Deacon, uh, besides all, all of those things, has to be the most excited I've ever been for something, it has to be my trip to London and Portugal that I took with Caroline for our 10-year anniversary, which seems like ages ago, um, but it, it was an amazing uh, experience. And you guys know that feeling of just anticipating something a lot? Like uh, that feeling that you get, like you're just daydreaming about it at work. Every minute that you get at work where you're not doing anything, which is nowadays in a remote world is a lot. We're kind of just sitting there in front of our computers. You were like Googling what to eat, where to go, uh, what to see, right? We're looking at pictures of food. Do you guys ever fill out the, um, a spreadsheet with your itinerary? Do you guys do that or is it just me? Okay. Some of you do that. I see some hot heads nodding. I'm not crazy. I did that. I was very excited about my trip to London and Portugal. I was geeking out, filling in that itinerary. Um, There was literally nothing that could happen, nothing that could get in my way of me taking that trip. In fact, um, our sister-in-law was planning to come and watch our kids for about a week. Uh, God bless her. And if she didn't end up coming, if for whatever reason, something happened and she couldn't come. My plan B was this. My plan B was to, uh, on our way to the airport, grab the kids, put them in the car, drive over to the Gottlieb's. Don't tell them this was my plan B. I was just going to drop them off without waving goodbye. I was going to head over to the airport and on my way to the airport, I was just going to text Justin like, hey, I left something for you, <laughs> but here you go. Uh, thanks. I was determined to take this trip no matter what. Nothing was going to get in my way. See. When we commit to something that we think is going to be awesome, is going to be fun, is going to be fulfilling and exciting, we make it happen at all costs, right? Now, on the other side of it, when we, maybe we commit to stuff that's not so exciting, not so fun, not so interesting, what ends up happening? We conveniently forget. We come down with that strange, mysterious 24-hour stomach bug. We've got too much work to do. We're too tired. We really come up with all kinds of excuses. We create reasons not to follow through with that thing. Uh, last year, it took me weeks to finish painting the ceiling of our house. Do you know how unfulfilling painting a ceiling is? The ceiling is white, and I have to paint the ceiling white. It is not fun, so I was not looking forward to it. Now, if it's difficult to follow through with less than enjoyable things, less than interesting things, then it's absolutely impossible. There's no chance that we would ever follow through with something painful, right? There's no way uh, that we would sign up or volunteer for something that would hurt us, right? When's the last time you volunteered for something that was painful? Well, I was, I'm looking at Tara. Maybe she volunteered for the marathon, so that's on you. Uh, but <laughs> humans don't do that. As a rule, we avoid anything that's going to result in pain. Well, except for surgery, except for, right, except for op- uh, operations and medical procedures, right? But even that's like a short-term like, trade-off. It's like short-term pain for longer-term gain. So, so knowing this about ourselves, this reality, when we get into Mark chapter 14, we should really marvel. We should be just blown away that Jesus actually resolves to go through with what he's about to go through. See, what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane in in Matthew chapter 14, in the passage we just read, is so antithetical to our human nature that it should lead you to question, what in the world is motivating Jesus? What's driving Jesus to to follow through with this? See, all along, Jesus knew when he got to this earth, he knew this was his mission. God had given him him a mission to die an unjust and painful death. This was going to happen because this was the means for salvation to the world. He had to die. This is the will of the Father. This was prophesied by uh, all, all the prophets. This was the Ark of Redemption. And the Ark of Redemption was always going to include Jesus dying for our sins. Even he knew that. Even Jesus knew that. He'd always talk about this with his disciples. He would say things like, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed. He'd remind them, this is going to happen. And as he was just one day away from this fate, what we're going to see today is Jesus' faithfulness, his resolve to the will of God, even in the midst of hellish circumstances. So, Mark chapter 14, we're going to walk through this. Um, Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. I want to draw your attention starting in verse 30. I know that's not part of our uh, passage that we just read, but I want to start a little bit before our passage. And if you were here last week to hear Magdiel's sermon, um, you would know where I'm going with this. But if you weren't, you should listen to it. He did an awesome job really helping us understand um, the, the passage last week. And In fact, I told him afterwards, like, hey, Magdiel, you should preach every week. And he's like, no, thank you. Uh, politely declined, Uh, and I was like, please, and he he didn't take me up on the offer. So maybe collectively we ask him and peer pressure him, he would do that every week. So let's do that, okay? Well, One of the things he pointed out was the symmetry of Mark chapter 14 thus far. He uh, he was telling us that um, Jesus emphasized the nearness of Judas twice, and then Peter emphasized his commitment to Jesus twice. Yet despite their best efforts, none of them were able to secure their own salvation. Now, before we go and point a finger only at Judas and only at Peter, I want us to listen to the words of Jesus starting in verse 30 because he says this. He says, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now, it's true that this is actually directed towards Peter. So he's talking to Peter. He's saying, you, Peter, will deny me specifically. You will deny me. We're going to read about that um, in the coming weeks. But I couldn't help but to see the application of Jesus' prophecy here, Jesus' warning here to all the disciples. You see, we get a small, ominous clue that this might be the case at the end of verse 31. So Peter emphatically declares, he says this, he says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then the narrator, Mark, comes back and writes in, and they all said the same. They all chimed in and said the same. So Mark certainly blows up Peter's spot and says, Peter, you screwed up. But he also blows up the spot of all the other disciples. And as a reader, you're left wondering, well, it seems Jesus is saying Peter's going to deny Jesus. But I wonder if they'll all deny Jesus. So let's keep reading. So after the Passover meal, remember, uh, Jesus and his disciples were going to the Mount of Olives and and just east of the city, and they settled in a uh, very green part just east of the city called Gethsemane. Now, by this time, Judas had already slipped away in the the night, and he was set to go off. He was presumably preparing for the betrayal, which we'll read about shortly. Uh, So there were only 11 disciples with Jesus. So Jesus and his 11 disciples in the garden, and he tells eight of them, he says, you eight, sit here while I pray. And to the remaining three, he invites them to walk a little bit further into the garden area. Now, in that special group of three were Peter, James, and John. They were singled out. Now, this isn't the first time they were singled out because all throughout the scriptures and the gospels, uh, you hear Jesus kind of calling those three out specifically, Uh, they get to spend time with Jesus in significant times of Jesus' ministry. Uh, He invites them into the transfiguration on the mount. Uh, He invites them here into the garden in his final evening of prayer. And so you begin to wonder, what's so special about these guys? What's so special about Peter, James, and John? Why do they get to be a part of Jesus' inner circle? And I, I don't think there's anything special necessarily about them or their character. But later on, what we do realize is that Jesus appoints these three men to be leaders, significant leaders in his early church. Jesus appoints these men to be future leaders, to to build up his church, and, and maybe, just maybe, the reason why he invites them into the inner circle, the reason why he invites them to the mountain to see the transfiguration and all his glory, the reason why he uh, lets them experience suffering and the pain in the garden, maybe it's so that it can leave an indelible mark on them because that was supposed to help them as they planted Jesus' early church, as they started that. See, there's a reason why Jesus didn't go to pray privately here. He did that a ton. He went off and prayed privately and the disciples had no idea where he was often. But here, Jesus invites the disciples to come. He invites them to come along, and he says, well, you three, why don't you come a little bit closer? Come a little bit closer and listen to how, uh, what I'm going to pray. For some reason, Jesus saw fit that these disciples should be close enough to not only see him pray, but hear what he prays. All right, in fact, as, as evidence of this, This is the very first recorded prayer in the Gospel of Mark. Up until this time, we have never heard Jesus pray. We knew he prayed. We never heard what he has prayed. And so Mark, if you remember, he's the author of this Gospel. And Mark's role in the church was always as a scribe or as basically a writer for Peter. We would travel with him, and he would be the Apostle Peter's ministry partner. So Mark wasn't there, but he heard from Peter about this event. And so Mark wrote it into His gospel. Peter was close to Jesus in the garden to have this prayer recorded for us. And I think what Jesus wanted these disciples to know was this. And this is the big idea. And I think this is what he wants the church to know. He wanted us to know that his faithfulness overcomes our faithlessness. That his faithfulness overcomes our faithlessness. Okay, remember how all the disciples repeated after Peter's uh, um, declaration, declaration that they would never deny Jesus? They all, remember, they all said that? Remember when Jesus said, you know what, before the cru- uh, rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times? Well, notice what happens three separate times in the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, first, verse 34 Jesus instructs his disciples, okay, remain here and watch. And Jesus goes away to pray, and then he comes back in verse 37, and then what does he see? They're not keeping watch. Their eyes are closed. They're sleeping. Right? So, again, in verse 38, he tells them, okay, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he goes away, and then he prays on his own, and then comes back in verse 40, and then what does he see? They're sleeping again. So, A third time, he goes away to pray on his own, and then he comes back in verse 41, and it says, and he came to the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? So three times, Jesus instructs them to join him in prayer, to stay awake and to watch, and Jesus calls them to be on guard with him, and all three times, the disciples fail. They agree with him, like give him the head nod, like, yeah, I'll do it. Yep, I got you. Yeah, Jesus, we're good. You can keep going. But all three times, they fail. They fall asleep. It's, it's comical how this happens. It's comical that how this all unfolds. They're, they're just like, yeah, 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 Jesus, we got this. We're, we're good. I'm not tired at all. Trust me. And they fall asleep. The minute Jesus turns his back to go and pray, they begin to snore. So I think... This really is indicative of our own spiritual lives. I think you would agree. If you think about how this uh, plays out, you would say, you know what? This is kind of how my spiritual life works. Oftentimes, I say to Jesus or I commit to God, I'm going to read the Bible from cover to cover this year. This is going to be the year. I'm going to wake up early in the morning and pray for myself, for my family, for my friends. I'm going to commit myself to do that. This is the year I'm going to go to church. And then what happens? We make all those commitments to love God and it it is out of good intentions. We have great intentions, but what inevitably ends up happening? We all fall short. There's a reason why we haven't made it past numbers. There's a reason why we're too tired to wake up uh, to pray. There's a reason why we're just too busy or too tired to go to church. We, We just don't ever follow through with those commitments. And if you think for a second, That Jesus is standing there and he's waiting for you to follow through with your commitments before he loves you, you'd be wrong. If you think that God is waiting for you to prove you can do it before he saves you, you couldn't be further from the truth. Sometimes we think bad things happen to us because we didn't do something right for God. It's not true. It's not true. You know how I know that? Because of what Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, read with me. Verse 34. He's entering into the time of prayer, and he admits to Peter, James, and John, hey guys, my soul is sorrowful, even to death. I mean, just a sidebar, if, if there's ever proof that the Bible is real, it's here. Like, what kind of made-up religion would make its uh, Savior look like this? What kind of made-up, man-made religion would make its savior to look weak and not wanting to do what he has to do? He admits to Peter, James, and John, my soul is sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Jesus is distressed. He knows he's about to die in a matter of hours, and of course it causes him to be distressed. But this is just more than flinching at the prospect of that. This is just more than, oh my gosh, this is going to be something hard that I'm going to have to do soon. No, Jesus was overwhelmed with sorrow. That's the fullness of the word, overwhelmed with sorrow. He is burdened with grief. In Luke's account, it says that there, there was sweat Great drops of blood, like sweat. If you're a medical professional, you know that this is a real thing. It's called, I wrote it down, hematidrosis. Hematidrosis. Right? Your body is so stressed, like the blood vessels pop and and basically blood comes through your sweat glands uh, along with your sweat and it looks like you're sweating blood. Jesus was under immense stress. Stress. He wasn't just saying this to put on a show. So is this Jesus being weak? Is this Jesus being weak? I mean, think of the martyrs. Have you guys heard of stories of like martyrs going to their death because of you know, their faith in Christ? There's one account of Polycarp um, who was a martyr. Um, and Polycarp, he was martyred for Jesus. And there's an account that said, He looked at his murderer straight in the eye, and he would say something like this. He said, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour. And I'm going to use the dramatic movie voice, because that's that's how I think he said it. You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour, and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Now, I have no idea if he actually said that, but I like to imagine he did. There are some other martyrs that went to, the, to their stake uh, singing hymns or smiling, just praising God for this opportunity to die. Right? That's the type of savior you want, right? Somebody that is just so strong, so mighty. Right? Don't we want Jesus to be just like Polycarp, like movie voice, action hero? But then you have to remember that what Jesus was facing was entirely different than what Polycarp was facing. See, Polycarp was just experiencing the death of just one man. But Jesus was going to experience the death of all mankind. Which is why later on Jesus says, he prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. So as Jesus comes with the reality of uh, uh, that hell will be unleashed on him, as he begins to feel that cold separation of being away from his father for the first time in all of eternity, he wonders if there is another way that this could end. There's got to be another way that this can all end. Of course he doesn't want to drink the cup. The the cup symbolizes God's wrath. God's wrath and just punishment for the sins of the world. There was going to be a, a, a price to pay for sin, and that price was death. We know the devastation of God's wrath, right? We've seen it in the scriptures. We've seen it specifically in the flood. Wipes out in the, the entire world. And he was going to take that on for all of mankind. Jesus was wondering if the servant had to suffer. There has to be another way, Jesus. please, Or God, please. But we including Jesus, knew the answer to that prayer. He knew that there was no other way, which is why he ends the prayer with, yet not what I will, but what you will. And it doesn't say this anywhere, but I'd like to imagine after he said that, he just broke down just sobbing, just like that trembling type of sobbing, just uncontrollable weeping in that moment. Because think about how horrible it was to face that sort of death on your own. Even your closest friends on earth, the 11 disciples that he had brought near to him, were all sleeping. They were snoring. He could hear them uh, yards away. They weren't even there to support him in his final day alive. It even says in Luke's account that after praying, yet not my will, but yours be done, God sent an angel from heaven to strengthen him. And I don't know what that angel did, but I just got to imagine the angel was holding Jesus, comforting him, holding his uh, trembling body and the tears that were coming down his face, reminding him that the will of God was to rescue humanity and his place in all of that. Now, after this third time in prayer, he comes back to the sleeping disciples and says, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. Now, please don't miss this. Because this scene right here, these verses right here, this moment is a picture of the gospel and why it is such good news. Our faithlessness is overcome by Jesus' faithfulness. Our faithlessness is overcome by Jesus' faithfulness. Our best efforts to stay awake and watch and pray almost always end in failure. Almost always end in failure. Yet, Jesus doesn't come up and show up to the sleeping group of men and say, You idiots. How come you can't stay awake? What's wrong with you? You're not worth my time and effort. I give up. You're on your own. Good luck, guys. He doesn't just walk away. No, instead, Jesus sees the failure. He wakes them up. He says, guys, it's time. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. He says, I'm going to go through with this, even though I see your failure. He remains faithful, even though we are faithless. Seven Mile Road, as we walk through This week, our life, remember the faithfulness of Jesus. Remember that he is faithful even though you are faithless. Remember that even in our best efforts, we often fail. We actually, if I dare say, we will always fail. But the good news is that even in our failure, that doesn't disqualify us from the love of God. In fact, it's a prerequisite to the love of God. Right? Romans says, for God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. While we consistently fail at following through on our commitments, while we fail to read the Bible from cover to cover, while we fail to wake up early in the morning to, to pray, while we fail to come to church, while we fail to do X, Y, or Z, for while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when you fail, not if, when, please hear the words of Jesus in this passage. He invites you to continue following him. He says to us, as he said to the sleeping disciples, get up. Let's keep going. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your words are for us. We thank you that you remind us, even here, that when we fail, we haven't been disqualified. When we fail, which we will, it's just the beginning of us leaning on you all the more. And I pray that you would remind us that though we are faithless at times, often, You are always faithful. You will always do the right thing. You have always done the right thing. You will follow through when we fail to follow through. So, Father, I pray that you would help us walk with you to get up and keep going just as you invite us to. pray all these things in Jesus' name.